for the Agile community. www.agile.fm Today I'm here with a guest, uh, an Agile FM, probably everybody knows. He wrote the best-selling book, Essential Scrum, A Practical Guide to the Most Popular Agile Process. He was the first managing director uh, of the Scrum Alliance from 2006 to 2007. Uh, he's a managing principal at Innolution, uh, and that he has been doing this for over 20 years. He lives in the Denver area. And here's another uh, fun fact, two more fun facts. Uh, he is an angel investor for numerous startups. We're going to talk about that uh, in a little bit. And he speaks three language, languages, English, Spanish, and Japanese. Um, we're speaking here today with Ken Rubin. Um, welcome to the podcast. And um, is that true about Japanese? So English, yes. Uh, conversant in Spanish and grammar school Japanese. Oh, wow. Yeah, very different languages here. Um, you know, Germanic, uh, Romantic, and then uh, in an Asian language you also put into the mix. Uh, interesting. Um, so, let's, where, we do, where do we get started? Uh, Scrum is obviously your home as a managing director uh, of the Scrum Alliance, the first one. Is that correct? The first one, the 2006? Yes. Yeah. yeah, the organization had existed for, uh, for a, a period of time. And I was brought on at the end of 2006 as the, the first formal managing director of the Scrum Alliance. And uh, I had agreed to sort of a one-year term. So that came to an end at the end of 2007. Wow. Okay. You wrote this book, The Essential uh, Scrum. Um, I forgot the date when it was published, but it is the number one best-selling book on Amazon ranking. I appreciate that. Yeah, it was published in, in August of 2012. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've now passed uh, the five-year point and... I'm always, you know, happy, somewhat baffled at times that it remained the number one book for five years, but um, I'm happy to see that's happening and still get a, a fair number of emails most weeks from people who are reading the book and want to ask questions or just provide feedback. So I'm always happy to receive that. Great. Angel Investor. Uh, the first thing when I saw that, I was like, are you investing into agile companies? So interestingly enough, it is a requirement that the founders of the company have to exhibit an agile mindset. Mm. Uh, and what I mean by that is they truly not only understand core agile principles, but they apply them in what they're doing. So when we first meet with entrepreneurs that are seeking an investment, we sit down and we have a conversation and really try to understand how they address the problems that they encounter and, and how they move forward once they've encountered them. So do they have a very experimental type mindset or uh, are they very focused on, hey, we know the right solution and all we have to do is execute according to some predetermined plan that we have and we'll be successful. Mm -hmm. uh, if we can determine that they have an agile mindset, then we're willing to take the next step, which at that point would require you know, due diligence on the company at a fair, fairly detailed level. Right. Wow. Okay. Um so talking about plans, right? So you're, you're delivering talks uh, in, in 2017 about annual budgets and plans. And uh, um, I was just listening today to a story where in, um, uh, in China, actually, there was a, a meeting of the party and they're meeting every five years. Um, and that's where they're doing their planning or signing off on their planning. Uh, you saying even planning one year is not enough. You want it shorter than that or eliminating maybe pieces of it altogether. 
I do have a position on that that says that the traditional way that most companies do budgeting and planning is rather poorly aligned with downstream agile development. And so it's actually, I'm glad we're talking about this topic because we are, for most companies, in their planning season. Uh, if, they're on, if their fiscal year aligns with the calendar year, typically in late Q3, early Q4, those companies begin their annual budgeting and planning cycle. Mm -hmm. And if you start to step back and look at the characteristics of what happens during that cycle, you start to realize that most of what's happening there is a poor fit for agility and that the teams that have to then do the work based on these plans and budgets that are put together honestly are somewhat compromised on the first day, meaning they're, they're in a sense behind the eight ball because decisions have been made that affect their ability to actually operate in an agile-like way. And because of that, it, it almost feels like they're being told at times, be agile, but really don't be agile. Because we need you to do certain things in order to support this annual budgeting and planning process that will cause you to do things you normally would not do if you're an agile team. Mm -hmm. For example, agile teams don't, as a, as a principal, don't usually try to put the full set of requirements together and the full project plan together very early on, like the first day, mm -hmm. when they have horrible knowledge. But the details required in some companies' budgeting and planning cycles do require the teams give a lot of consideration to every single project that they might work on, mm -hmm. literally up to 15 months into advance. So, yeah, this, this is a timely topic, and honestly, most companies that are doing their planning cycle in this traditional way think that it's working for them, and it probably isn't. And it isn't going to be their friend when they start doing uh, agile development at any kind of scale. Yeah, I, I do totally agree with you, right? And, uh, and I think many of the listeners would also say, yes, makes actually total sense what you're saying. But what is an alternative um, for these financial teams? Are you saying these teams need to be revamped, um, you know, basically changed to an agile mindset in a finance department? How, you know, I mean, I've, I've heard, um, you know, working with larger clients, they're basically, even if the numbers are not correct, they need a ballpark um, kind of thing. With that, how would this all fit in and what kind of things could companies do to accommodate this? So that's clearly the right question to be asking because no one is suggesting that a company not have financial controls, that they not have, you know, fiscal responsibility for what's going on because certainly if you and I had a company, we would want to have control over how the money was being spent at that company. So I don't fault any company for wanting to have good visibility into financially what's happening. Uh, I'm going to do this by example. Mm -hmm. uh, last year, I was visiting a company. I'm having a meeting with the executive team, uh, a multi-billion dollar company. And I had the CFO in the room, as well as a number of senior executives. And they were laying out in glorious detail how they did their annual budgeting planning. Mm -hmm. I mean, really excruciating detail. And I listened and really trying to absorb how they did it. And it's very similar to how a lot of companies did it. And eventually when they finished, I asked this question, which is, by, by the way, my favorite question. How's that working for you? <laughs> and, and there was this really long, at least it seemed long to me, it was probably about 15 or 20 seconds, but really long, uncomfortable pause where, you know, people were kind of shifting in their seats, looking, you know, their eyes were kind of moving around looking at other people to see what they were doing and how they were reacting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my first thought was, okay, I just stepped on a landmine. Mm -hmm. 
And I was just asking, I was curious how well this very detailed approach would be working. And what ended up happening at about 15, 20 seconds in, almost simultaneously, everybody burst out laughing. And it kind of the tension in the room broke. And, you know, the reality is that if when you're asked how it's working and the response after the uncomfortable period is laughter, you know, we got past the icebreaker where it's like, okay, so yes. can we get past this idea that you've been doing this for 15 years and I just asked you how it's working and your response to that truly was laughter, then maybe it's not working as well as you thought. Yeah. And so it actually opened the door for us to have a meaningful discussion. Now, whether they're going to adopt a core agile way of doing budgeting and planning is, is really yet to be determined because they tend to do this on an annual cycle and this was last year, so now we're just getting into the cycle for this year for them. Mm -hmm. Now, your, your question was, how, how would you do this any differently? Well, the first is, yes, I would expect that the senior managers that are involved in doing this have an agile mindset. At a minimum, that would mean they understand core agile principles. Right. Uh, and, and there's not that many that they have to understand, but, you know, so for example, I want them to understand how in Agile we deal with budgeting and planning in the presence of uncertainty. Right? And that involves things like you won't get the budgets and plans right up front, mm -hmm. which in some organizations is a rather tough pill to swallow. Mm -hmm. What do you mean we won't get it right? We'll work diligently for several months to get these plans right. But they won't, right? Hence the laughter. Right? And, but it doesn't mean just because we can't get them right up front that we shouldn't do any upfront budgeting and planning. I mean, Agile is not, the, the myth is that somehow Agile is anti-upfront work. Mm -hmm. Agile is not anti-upfront work. Agile is anti-upfront excessive work. So obviously, we'll do some amount of upfront planning and some, of up, and some upfront budgeting. No one's saying we shouldn't, but I like to think we're going to do a helpful amount, not an excessive amount, mm -hmm. which like in Agile, we'll handle budgeting and planning like we do everything else. A helpful amount upfront, with a healthy dose of just-in-time. Uh, and so I try to get them to this mindset, okay, oh, by the way, batch sizes. In Agile, we favor smaller batch sizes. They're working in huge batch sizes the entire sure. year. Right? This is clearly not a very Agile-like way to do it. So 15 months in advance, let's define every single project we're going to work on, where every single dollar is going to be spent for each of those projects. Oh, and by the way, I will hold you accountable to that. <laughs> So next year, as your spending starts to deviate at all from that plan, when you cross one of those variance lines that's going to be put in place, uh, you're going to be asked to come join me in my office so that I can question you as to why your project spending is off plan. Yeah. You know, by the way, your spending might be perfectly the right thing to be doing at this point. But since it doesn't match a plan that was put together many months ago when we had poor information we now waste even more time for you to come justify why you're off plan. And again, I'm not suggesting the company shouldn't have fiscal control over what's going on. I'm just saying that if we did things a little differently, it might not be as wasteful a process. Right. So, Ken, uh, would, it be, would it be along the lines to say, like very similar to Agile, if you want more, um, I don't even want to say the words, accuracy or precision in the numbers, but any kind of more predictability in those numbers, um, the shorter the time box, so you would suggest shorter budgeting cycles to have more predictability, let's say a three months window or like a quarterly window, 
if you are okay with more fluctuation, um, then the yearly window for financial planning could still work, but it's much more um, you know, volatility in terms of what kind of projects might actually get funded or not and so forth. Is that, is that the suggestion? It's one of the techniques I think they should use as more of a rolling budgeting approach. I think most companies are going to do a form of annual budgeting. And I don't think there's really much that I'm going to say that will move them off of that. I mean, that's their natural cycle for wanting to think about what they're going to spend over the next year. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I, can, I can live with that. Where I have a problem is when we attempt to figure out exactly where every dollar is going to be spent and what all the projects are going to be in the portfolio mm -hmm. for the upcoming year. When we're trying to do that in the presence of a high degree of uncertainty, meaning we have rather poor knowledge about the next year you know, 15 months before the end of that year. And so we're trying to make a lot of detailed decisions in the lack, in the presence of a high degree of uncertainty. So the agile approach is the one you just described. So even if they want to say, here's the budget for next year. And, and when I worked at IBM, mm -hmm. and I, I spent two years there, and you know, as big companies go, I thought IBM was a very good big company, but I, I never had the luxury of asking for a budget. I was simply told, mm -hmm. well, it was going to be. And the way it was described to me by a higher level finance person is, you know, I, the company would simply figure out or anticipate what its revenues would be next year. And Wall Street would tell IBM how much money they were allowed to spend on R&D, meaning companies of that class. The expectation is you'll spend a certain percentage on R&D. Mm -hmm. Well, if you project revenues and you know a percentage of R&D, you know what your R&D budget is. And they would start dividing up the pie. Mm -hmm. And by the time it got to my, you know, I had a team of 130 person, right? By IBM standards, that would be small. Mm -hmm. uh, and by the time the numbers got to me, it was some small number measured in millions. And I was told, here's your budget. Well, in software, when you're told, here's your budget, that pretty much tells you what your headcount is. Mm -hmm. The greatest expense there. So now the only real question I had to answer is what can I get done with the budget I've been allocated and the headcount that I can afford to acquire for right. that budget. So I'm okay if annually I get told, here's your budget. Now what I would want to be able to do after that is maybe say something like this. Fine. Uh, let, I have a pretty good idea of where I'm going to spend my money in the first quarter. Because as you pointed out, the horizon there is near term. I have better visibility. Less things are likely to happen in three months than they could in 12. So maybe I understand where 100% of where my available funding will go in Q1. Maybe by Q2, I'm down to 80% understanding. Q3, maybe 60. And maybe by Q4, only 40%. So if someone asked me the question, so how are you going to spend your budget in Q4? My response back would likely be, well, I have a decent idea of where about 40% of that budget is going to get spent. I mean, if nothing else, there's probably always some efforts that are like keeping the lights on that I know I have to fund. Right. But what about the other 60%? I mean, you're, you have multiple millions of dollars for Q4. What about that? You know, I don't really know. I have some ideas, but I need to reserve that because as things start to change and over the course of a year, nobody's company mm. goes through an entire year with uh, unexpected events, you know, not happening. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I need the ability to be flexible, nimble, dare I say agile, when those things happen. So yeah, I could approach my budgeting that way and say I have a horizon-based budgeting where in the near term, I have a better understanding where more of that money is going to be spent and further out less. Mm. And I think most reasonable people get that. 
Right. But it's, it's contrary to the tell me where, tell me every project you're going to do, when you're going to do it, how much money you're going to spend, so I can track you against that. Yeah, why do you think there is such a discrepancy between the, the accounting uh, principles and, uh, and IT teams? I mean, it's like, or, you know, processes and, uh, and, and budgetary uh, project planning. I mean, there's, there's definitely a discrepancy out there in, in organizations. It's not like they learned together. These are accounting rules. Or we had traditional processes, which we now have shifting over to, to agile, um, as you say, mindsets. But why is there such a discrepancy? Um, why, is, like, why, why are we solving the problems uh, for accounting? Why are they not necessarily uh, looking at that as a point of how, how do we react to the agile market? I mean, it is, it is a substantial size at this point. No, it, it is. And let's separate two pieces there because I, I liked how you formulated that. There's the piece on budgeting and there's the piece on accounting for expenditures. Mm -hmm. And so the gap guidelines, right, the, the generally accepted accounting principles, talk about how to account for costs, how to, how to allocate them, what you're allowed to expense, what you're allowed to capitalize. That's well defined. And there's no accounting organization that I'm aware of, or at least one that I've encountered, that's mm -hmm. willing to do something contrary to those guidelines. I agree. Mm -hmm. Should they get audited and they can't have a reasonable justification for why they did what they did, mm -hmm. they might have a real problem. And given all the new regulations since the meltdown of Enron and mm -hmm. WorldCom, nobody's willing to take that risk because that could be prison time. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to accounting, we still have to help them there, right, on, on doing cost accounting. That's a whole other side of this equation because, quite honestly, the gap guidelines – are written from a waterfall perspective. And so the trigger points, right, so I think it's most people who are listening to this who are familiar with accounting understand that you know, some costs can be expensed, others have to be capitalized. That's right, yeah. As a general rule, you probably want to capitalize whatever you can because if you end up expensing too many things, likely you will overpay on your taxes and you will undervalue your company. Mm -hmm. So as a general rule, you don't want to do that. Uh, and so the, the bad news is that projects that they're familiar with how to do it with waterfall, they're not familiar with how to do it on an agile project because, you know, they have, they have triggers like achieve technical feasibility, you know, written managerial approval to do the development, committed development resources, management confident of success. Usually in waterfall, that means you completed analysis and design. And you're now moving into the development phase. So analysis and design typically get expensed, and coding and testing typically get capitalized, yeah. and all maintenance work has to be expensed. Well, as everybody knows, in Agile, we don't work a phase at a time. We work a feature at a time. Hmm. So things get a little cloudy over an encounter. They're like, hmm, I don't see the same trigger points that I saw on a waterfall project, so how am I supposed to determine when to capitalize, when to expense? So we the Agile folks here, have an obligation to work with our accounting counterparts uh, to help them understand how Agile works so they can make an informed decision about how they want to account appropriately for costs, either expense them or capitalize them. Right. It's not, it's not the time uh, that determines those triggers. It's the, the kind of work, right, within the sprint. And uh, that's going, that has to be weeded out from an accounting perspective, like what cost is, is what, right? Is it documentation? Is it a scrum master? Is it the 
Uh, That's right. Yeah, so that makes it a little bit more tricky, but could be done, has been done. In, in, in the past, they haven't had a need to worry about Agile because <clears throat> if companies historically followed a phase-based sequential approach, it conformed very nicely to the guidelines they've been provided, and they're pretty expert at knowing when to do these things. But now, all of a sudden, we're past the pilot stage, right? Maybe we do the pilot project, they don't sweat it. Mm-hmm. Right? Because Agile's not embedded in the organization. But once, you, once you've had that successful pilot, and you decide now we're going to go do Agile on a large scale, it becomes a real issue. And I don't fault the accounting people. In fact, I've been with a Scrum Master that was once invited into to the CE, CFO's office to say, okay, I need you to help, help me understand what's going on here so I can make a decision on when I want to do these things, mm-hmm. when I want to capitalize on expense. I'm like, good for you. Yeah, fair. Right. Yeah, so that's accounting saying we're going to, we need to understand how Agile works. That doesn't mean they're going to run sprints in accounting. Yeah. What it means is they have to understand how the development organization does its work so they can appropriately account for costs. So that handles the accounting, sort of the, the cost accounting aspect. Mm-hmm. You know, the budgeting thing. Budgeting, there are, as far as I know, there are no gap guidelines for budgeting. Every company budgets its own way. Uh, I liked how Apple did it, quite honestly. I mean, when I, when I uh, listened to the Steve Jobs you know, biography. I'm a big Audible fan, so mm-hmm. I listen to my books. But when I listened to that biography, it was pretty clear that Apple had one budget, right? And that you know, Steve Cook controlled it. And you know, what what Jobs didn't want to do was give every department a budget, because we know what behavior that leads to. It leads to a you know a use it or lose it mentality. Mm-hmm. So if he gives marketing a budget to do, you know, the next launch for you know uh, iPhones. Um, then marketing will probably find a way to spend it. And so basically he says, marketing, you talk to Cook, he'll tell you what, you know, what money you have to spend. And if you need more money, just go back to him. Mm-hmm. You don't have a budget. There's just one budget. And if he needs money, he'll take it from somewhere else and give it to you if he thinks you deserve it. Mm-hmm. So the Apple budgeted its own ways. That's radically different than most other companies. Yeah, definitely. I did not, uh, I did not know about that. Uh, from an, Maybe that's a similar side, but for you as a... Um, angel investor, there's a different side, right? So you're looking at companies that are operating, let's say, in Agile or planning on doing um, Agile. With all these changes going on, uh, basically how a team would then, you know, report progress on, on their efforts. Let's say they're going a few sprints in, they're going to start working off their budget. Are there any kind of metrics, either for you as an investor, <laughs> I'm just um, throwing that in, or from you as a consultant, what kind of metrics are then being used to track against these budgets and uh, um, that have been initially planned, right? So we're going right now after the planning phase, we're going into our fiscal year, we start spending. What kind of metrics are you interested in? So, okay, that this is a really important question. So once um, there's, as we all know, most larger cities, uh, even some mid-sized, because I live in, uh, in Boulder, mm-hmm. Colorado. Nice. So there's three incubators, there's three accelerators in Boulder. One of them is called Boomtown. And every cohort, so every 12 weeks or so, when I have a new set of cohorts come into the incubator, I go down there and I give them a presentation, a discussion that is called Startup Financial Modeling. And my goal is pretty simple. I want to help them understand how they should do their financial modeling and present it to angel investors and do it in an agile-like way. 
So I actually go in and I give a presentation to them. You know, we take an hour and a half to two hours to do this. Mm-hmm. And we do a deep dive because, you know, I've worked at nine startup companies in the past. I took two of them public on NASDAQ, one in 1994 and another in 2000. Wow. So back then you would put together really fascinating plans, ridiculously fascinating, mm-hmm. right? Because VCs back then would ask you for the three to five year plan with the budgets and everything that goes with it. I mean, quite honestly, what startup company could possibly give you an accurate three to five year look into the future? <laughs> right? I mean, a company that has no experience is at its greatest form of ignorance. It's just getting started. Is somehow supposed to give you these de- you know, detailed financial modeling. So I'll give you an example. Part of what I tell the startup companies, I call these the financial models don't do, right? Things like, you know, don't send me a model that's already out of date. Don't try to communicate that you know more than you actually know. Meaning if they put together a detailed budget, you know, down to the penny, I'm like, okay, you're already trying to communicate more than you don't know. Don't state assumptions like they're facts, Mm -hmm. right, when you're giving me your financial model. Don't spend a lot of time on the non-material detailed level noise, Mm -hmm. right? I I used to get plans from people that would do things like this. They're telling me how much it costs them per gigabyte for storage. And there's like an entire spreadsheet on that. I'm like, so I would always ask this question. Is your business model materially driven by how much you pay per gigabyte of storage? Meaning, mm-hmm. if the price of a gigabyte went up by an order of magnitude, would that at all significantly impact your financial projections? It would be like, right. no. Mm-hmm. I'm like, so why would you even put that in there? Well, you know, we thought it would be a good idea that we wanted to show you we understood all the variables that drive our business. I'm like, you just showed me you don't, right? If if, if I can change that by an order, that number by an order of magnitude, and it has no material impact on okay. your financials, then it clearly is not a driving variable, mm-hmm. right? So you know, basically, we tell them, you know, your financial story, your your plan, your financial plan ought to tell a compelling, clear story that you understand your business, you know how it works, you understand the variables that drive it. So I think people try to put these monstrously detailed plans together and it's like, yeah, I look at them like, I I don't think you know your business because you can't cut it back to the essence Mm -hmm. of what it's supposed to be. Why do large companies believe, you know, that they're going to baffle me with all this BS? Yeah, focus, right? Yeah, to show us what's important. You know, show, go to what's important. So big companies, I, I would, if I were in their shoes, I would do budgeting. I'd want to know, you know roughly where we were going to spend money. Uh, but I wouldn't try to figure out all the details of it because, first of all, it denies flexibility when you're going to need it. Mm-hmm. Or it requires huge effort to be flexible. Right. right? What happens when the billion-dollar idea that nobody thought of at annual strategic budgeting and planning presents itself one month later? What are you going to do, wait till next year? <laughs> well, sorry, it didn't make it into this year's planning cycle, so no, uh, we'll worry about that next year. By the way, some of these ideas are fleeting. If you don't act on them immediately, you lose almost all the value immediately. It's like being stuck in the market. Right. You can say, well, being stuck in the market's worth nothing. How do you not move on something like that? There's a huge opportunity. Well, what, what a shame that we spent all that time, all that effort, putting together all of those detailed plans and budgets just have to blow it out of the water, right, because something appeared. Or what happens, I was doing work with a company two years ago. They decided mid-year they were going to take all the money from the U.K., or at least most of it, 
and redirect it to the U.S. Why? Because they determined that net promoter scores in the U.S. had dropped and the U.S. generates most of the revenue for this company. So they did all this budgeting. They did it by geographies. Every mm -hmm. geography had its allocation. Each geography said exactly what they were going to do with the money. And then three months into the year, what do they do? Blow it all up. Yeah. By the way, they did it for all the right reasons. Yeah. They it, everything they did was absolutely the right thing to do. My only complaint was, look at all the waste. Yeah. And, that's, and I think there is so much we can do. And maybe... Beside that aspect, for you as an investor, as a consultant, with your experience in the in the Scrum community, I mean, where do you where do you see an agile company, like in in ten years from now? How this is all going to look like? Um, not only from a budgetary perspective, right? Also from an investments perspective, from an as an industry as a whole. I mean, where do we where do you see us in ten years? If so. No, it's a good question because several years ago I gave a presentation at Agile 2015 mm -hmm. called Agile Through the Value Chain. And uh, for those who are familiar with the work of Jeffrey Moore, he has a very famous book called Crossing the Chasm. Mm -hmm. And the, the idea behind that is it just really talks about the stages of technology adoption. And the chasm is the this piece between early adopters and early majority that most companies, the technology companies, die in the chasm because they can't make it across. Because mm -hmm. you want to get across to the big market, which is where the majority participates. And so in that presentation, I made the following argument that I think that agile within IT, agile within uh, in development has crossed the chasm. It's made it across. That it's hit mainstream. There are companies that most people would view as you know, very conservative, that in their IT or development groups, they are using Agile today. Mm -hmm. So in the spirit of, has Agile crossed the chasm? If you're answering that question from an IT development perspective, I, I think most people would conclude yes. I agree, yeah. All right, now, Agile through the full value chain, I don't think that's happened. That's where I think this is going over the next 10 years, right? And my, my thesis is that if you really want to realize the full benefits of Agile, you have to, companies have to embrace Agile through the full value chain. If not, they're going to limit their benefits to just within the development organization, right? And so the whole point is the non-development organizations need to embrace at least the core Agile principles. And we've been focusing this discussion on the financial group. That's correct, yeah. We actually didn't even talk about IT, yeah. But broaden it out. What about sales? What about marketing? What about legal? What about HR? What about auditing? What about all these other groups? Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that in the next 10 years, to claim that Agile truly has crossed the chasm in all respects, I am saying that other organizations inside large companies will have embraced core Agile principles. Mm -hmm. And again, I'm not suggesting that the legal department will is going to go yeah. off and run sprints. They might. They might not. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is they have to understand how to, for example, legal has to realize that writing fixed price, fixed scope, right, subcontracts with, with our vendors is going to disconnect the agile development downstream immediately. Our right. sales team has to understand the same concepts, right? So if we don't get them on board, we'll never see the full benefits of agility. So my hope 10 years from now, we're looking back saying when an organization embraces agile, embraces agility, they do it across the value chain. Across the value chain. 
what a wonderful um, end to this to this podcast. Uh, again, I know we could and you could go on uh, for longer, and uh, there will be other talks you will be giving about this topic. I'm pretty sure. Uh, very interesting for me to see this as an as an uh, somebody who is actually in the weeds and working with uh, companies through these processes, but also somebody as the on the outside. I think that this puts another perspective to it as an um, as an investor and how you see things. So we got investors tips, right? We get uh, people listening to this. Uh, want to start a company and uh, looking for you know investment and trying to do this agile. Here were some tips. We also learned a lot about budgets and plans and uh, um, even accounting rules uh, to some extent. And um, we also got a little vision from you. And I think uh, that's where we're seeing the market going slowly right now. But um, we'll we'll check in in ten years from now and see where we are in ten years. All right. <laughs> I'll look forward to that. All right, Ken. Thank you so much uh, for. Uh, all the examples, the details, and uh, anything you um, brought to this podcast. Thank you so much. Um, Joe, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yes, and for everybody who wants to connect uh, with Ken, his uh, Twitter handle is KRubinAgile, all in one word. Thank you so much again. Thank you for listening to Agile FM, the radio for the Agile community. I'm your host, Joe Krebs. If you're interested in more programming and additional podcasts, please go to www.agile.fm. Talk to you soon.